Welcome, Mike Crawford here, Young Jerks, special episode. We say that a lot lately, but this truly is for multiple reasons. Uh, with me is uh, behind the board. He's my producer now. Makes it a little easier for me. Grant Smith, what's up, man? Not too much, Mike. Uh, very active week on so many fronts and very glad to be with you and our very special guest today for what should be a very, hopefully, uh, engaging and informative episode. Yes. You want to talk about the guests that we have? Well, uh, we are really honored today to welcome the first uh, operational uh, owner uh, of an economic empowerment dispensary, cannabis dispensary, adult use dispensary in the city of Boston. Uh, The company uh, is called Pure Oasis. And uh, Kobe Evans has been a pioneer in the cannabis industry in so many regards. And it's really an honor for us to be able to welcome him to the Young Jerks tonight again for a second time. Hey, guys. Hey, how you doing? Um, Good. I miss being in the studio. It's different, isn't it? It is. Do you like it better this way or do you like coming into when we had a studio? I like it. I like coming into the studio. You do. We do too. We miss that, but it's a different, uh, it's weird. Cause you don't have as much control. Like I, I like not having to commute to a studio, but yeah, then I have true. to deal with all the other stuff that's going on in the space that I'm in right now. So yeah. Right. I don't know yeah. if you have that same situation at home, but, uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the big thing, you know, obviously that's on everyone's mind. I'm sure you've gotten a million calls, emails, is what happened recently. Um, do you want to just talk about that? I mean, how, how do you want to approach that? Because for us as a community, I mean, everyone, all, as soon as we announced that we're having you on the show today, like five people, you know, reach out within a half hour. Like, how can we help Kobe Evans right now? Um, you guys were featured. You, you were featured on the Netflix show. It went viral. And then the next thing you know, you're in the news for the uh, looting situation. Um, yeah. <clears throat> 2020 has been a very interesting year. I'll be glad when, you know, it's December and we're looking at, you know, 2021. Um, yeah, it's just interesting that, you know, go from, you know, I work for myself the last, you know, decade or so. And now I own this business with my business partner and, you know, and all these global and national things happen. And then we end up in the crosshairs of everything. And, you know, there was a part when we didn't have to worry about these things and we didn't have to worry about being affected. And then all of a sudden we're very affected. And, you know, us, like most people were watching the news on Sunday night and seeing all the protests and went to bed feeling, you know, pretty good that the protests were happening across town and that, you know, pure racist was safe because, we're somewhat, you know, three to five miles away from where everything is happening. <clears throat> and we just felt like we didn't have much to worry about. And then, you know, you get a call in the middle of the night that there's been an intrusion and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's disheartening on a couple of different levels. And I think that more so, you know, within the shadow of, of um, you know, uh, George Lloyd losing his life and, and, and people protesting peacefully um, there were a number of individuals who felt like, you know, they wanted to take advantage of that for 
for personal gain and all across the city, different businesses were being looted and, you know, um, damaged. And um, it was kind of a gut punch, you know, just based off being closed, being open and, you know, then being um, vandalized by, um, you know, a group of people for, for, for no good reason other than, you know, just because. So um, luckily there wasn't much damage and we were able to, you know, open that same day. And, you know, we weren't sure about opening, um, but as we were out there cleaning up the glass and assessing the damage, you know, every other person, every other car stopped and, you know, asked about us and they were concerned. And, you know, they're very vocal about the fact that this wasn't neighborhood people because neighborhood people support Pure Oasis. And, you know, we, we, we made the decision to open that day, you know, because we felt like, A, we needed to be there for the community and B, if we close, then they win. And, you know, that's not what we wanted, you know, we wanted to, to be Boston strong, you know, we wanted to, you know, represent the strength of our community and the resolve of our community that, you know, we've come this far and, and this isn't going to go stop us, nor is it going to slow us down. And, um, you know, so we've been doing good since then. And, and, and I think it's more important to the fabric of the community that we stay open to demonstrate to other social equity and economic applicants that, you know, um, winning is about perseverance and it's about not seeing barriers and not seeing interruptions and looking through those and, and, and being focused on the end result. And, you know, that's what we want to do. And, and for our employees, for our customers, for the community, um, it was important that we forge ahead. Amazing. Um, I, what was the response? Because I know that uh, people were asking me today, how can they help? I noticed you post a Facebook post about that as well. And you put the Haley House down. As a way to yeah, yeah. Haley House is near and dear to my heart. You know, um, they do good work, and 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 you know, we are recreational. We are elective. We are not a requirement. This is something that people do with you know their disposable income, um, and 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 we will. We were open for business that same day, and and we're still you know a, a going concern, and, and 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 so we'll be okay. But there are other organizations that as you have an economic downturn, then they lose a lot of their funding sources. And Haley House helps a lot of people who are marginalized and they help people who are released from jail and they need a job and they need career training. And, and, and those are the important organizations to help um, bring true social justice and to bring economic equality and empowerment. Like Haley House is important. You know, again, what we're doing at Pure Oasis is important, but what Haley House is doing is necessary. You know, so I want to celebrate those organizations like Haley House that, 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 that make a difference to everyone, you know, and, 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 and that's what they do. I love it. Uh, I know Dig Boston also has, uh, shown mad support for Haley house too. So, uh, big, big, uh, great cause Haley house. Check it out. Um, Boston police right now, I'm sure are investigating all this, the looting of all the stores. Have you heard that other dispensaries? Cause that's something that I, I just heard from grant and we're, I don't know if we've found a source on that or what, or it was in one of the stories, but other dispensaries also got looted in Boston that I've night. Heard, Did you hear that? Um, I, I've heard kind of some chatter about, um, other dispensaries. I haven't been able to confirm it independently. I think that 
um, another retailer, um, Kim Napoli's um, husband. I thought that they posted something. And unfortunately, this has been pervasive across the country in terms of just people taking advantage of the situation. Um, you know, I don't know if, you know, I, I want to say it's out of um, selfishness and greed, you know, but I have to realistically, and we all have to realistically you know, understand that when Massachusetts has a high unemployment rate or the nation has a high unemployment rate, that low number for the nation turns into a big number for people from marginalized communities. So, you know, maybe it's out of need and, and, and I'm not sure if it makes a difference, but um, there's a lot of people affected negatively by the current economic situation, but it just seemed like it was a concerted effort and it seemed like it was more of a game to people and it definitely seemed like it was very coordinated because you know at two o'clock in the morning on a, on a, on a Sunday night um, there, during a pandemic when everything's closed I don't think it was a sheer coincidence that all these people just happen to be out and about. It's weird how it was nationwide too. California like I think at least 30 stores got raided dispensaries and manufacturers and and we're hearing it in Boston, and uh, Kobe was a victim of this, uh, Pure Oasis, the company he co-owns. Um, the first black dispensary in Boston, the first dis recreational dispensary in Boston, number one. But you you have so many firsts in your story. It's tough to know which one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plan. I don't think that was our plan, but that's how it worked out. And, you know, with that comes, you know, great, a greater responsibility, and, and we want to uphold that. Uh, Boston police, have they investigated this i'm sure do you feel like they're handling it they've taken it serious do you think that they're going to find the people are there any suspects you know all of that yeah i don't you know what honestly we are looking forward you know we have staff um we have an operation and it's important for us to be open so that our staff are working and we already had to lay them off once because of the pandemic and you know it's important for us to be open and you know i think that from what i understand the pos the boston police department you know they have the footage um you know they have their own investigation going um and i think that they have enough evidence to um make some results happen um but you know we're very cooperative and, and, and we're, we're in communication um you know, but we are more concerned about, you know, upgrading a lot of our security apparatus and, and making our establishment more safe and, and doing what we need to do to make those improvements and to, you know, work on being one of the best um, dispensaries in Boston we can be. Awesome. And uh, Mass Cannabis Control Commission, do you think they're handling this well? They're not giving you too much Pushback no, they've been the CCC has been awesome. You know, um, we have a great inspector that we work with, and she's always there for us. And she was one of the first people that we called, and she came out. Um, you know, so the, the the CCC has been a great partner in ours, and, and and we like working with them, and we look forward to, you know, a long relationship with them. They've always been supportive and answered the call. Um, you know, so I think that we have a pretty good blanket of support all around. Um, you know, I think that our main concern is that what happened to us does not mar the peaceful protesters who are trying to be vocal um, and prove a point. And we want to disconnect the two as, as much as possible because, albeit it happened, 
around the time where there was this protest. In no we in no way do we see a direct um, connection between the two. I, I'm you know what I'm really happy that you said that because it's to me looking at it and and what happened in California too. It's and just talking to some of the other reporters like Jimmy Devine. I mean that's what he's coming up with. That's what like people who read the stories and look into it. But I don't think the general public gets that yet. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's hard to separate the two, um, you know, because they all happen seemingly under the same umbrella. But you know, one is playing off the other, and the the people who hit our store were taking advantage. They were exploiting the situation that. Boston Police Department was overextended, dealing with all the protesters, you know, in one part of the city, um, and they used that to their advantage um, in another part of the city. But um, it, it, it had, it, it had, I don't believe that there were any people that had, you know, a sense of consciousness regarding what was happening nationally that were, you know, um, the intruders in our store. Um, I think that it, it's it's a little sickening to think that you know on the heels of this this man losing his life that this is what people thought to do to you know either get back or to somehow how protests that's not the way to protest and I don't believe that there were any protesters who were responsible for this. And people can watch the security video. Dan Adams, Boston Globe put it out. Um, it's actually at first it was behind a paywall, which was frustrating me. But now you can actually watch it on Twitter. They, they Boston Globe Marijuana posted on the Twitter, so anyone can view this. Yeah, uh, I, I think everyone should check out that footage because uh, I think you can see exactly what's going on when you look at that footage. And it's what yeah, Kobe it's pretty saying, disturbing right? to say the least. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, go for it. No, Kobe, I just wanted to ask you. Um, a big part of the legal cannabis industry in Massachusetts is the host community municipal engagement process before yeah. licensure is obtained. Yeah. And as part of that process, there is a uh, relationship that uh, cannabis companies have to develop with the local public safety officials. Um, yeah. From your perspective, based on the work you've done with those public safety officials, the relationships you've built, what kind of on the ground changes need to be made in Boston to make sure that what happened to George Floyd and so many others across the country does not happen here ever again? So I think that that's, you know, I think that Boston has a storied past, you know, but interestingly enough, what Boston doesn't have is the kind of incidents that we see all over the country when it comes to the way that police and the public interact. Um, what I do have to say about Boston is that years ago they adopted community policing where you have police officers from the neighborhood and that has a dramatic effect on situations where you have encounters between civilians and police and we just haven't had, you know, the, the George Floyds and the Tamir Rices and, and the countless other individuals who have lost their life, you know, within the, the, the interactions with police. And so I think, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, um, there is a lot of room to grow. Um, but 
I can also say that um, we don't have the kind of problems here in Boston that they have across the country um, that are very pervasive. Um, you know, so I don't know what Boston is doing right. I don't know what kind of training they have, but you know, I like the fact that we don't have to march in Boston for things that are happening in Boston. We end up marching for things that are happening in other states. But I think that one of the things that we can continue to do is to have the kind of, you know, community policing where you, you know, I can literally stand in front of Pure Oasis and, 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 and see people that I grew up with that are now police officers and they live in the neighborhood and they travel in the neighborhood and, you know, we have pretty good relationships. Well, thank you. I, I think that that's such an important insight because there are, as much as it's important that the, the systemic issues that are very real and very present right now on display time and time again, as much as it's important to call them out, you highlighted a perspective that I didn't even think about as much, which is those incidents are not as prevalent in the city of Boston. And so thank you for that insight. I appreciate the answer. We've got another, uh, we got a few questions online on uh, Facebook, but I also wanted to ask about the Netflix special because that was, yeah. uh, I, I saw it. I was just blown away. I felt like, wow, this is kind of the stuff we've been covering. And he put it in this like one hour special that was really well done. And you guys were like the big stars in it. Um, were you happy with the, the way the Netflix special came out? Um, and what was the, the kind of response you got in your life after you were featured in this Kobe? Um, I was happy with the way the Netflix special came out because he didn't make us look like, you know, idiots. Um, sometimes, you know, you're filming stuff and um, you, you, you cross your fingers and you hope that, you know, they're going to portray you in a positive light. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And I know that sometimes, you know, they can kind of paint you in a certain light. But overall, I was happy in, 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 you know, sometimes you do one of those shows and you don't know all the details in terms of what they're producing. You know, they kind of give you a high level view and they kind of, you know, give you an idea of what they're looking for. But honestly, I was um, I was shocked and surprised at how in-depth and thorough they were with their, you know, quote unquote, investigative journalism. Um, you know, they definitely put a comedic spin on it, but they do tend to hit the nail on the head and you know for someone who's outside of the realm they did a good job of kind of peeling back the layers to dig deep into the the core of you know what a lot of people have been losing their mind over is this relationship between some of the companies some of the you know um political aspects and and, and um some of the inner workings of, of this machine that is rolling across the country um, and having a direct influence on who gets a license and who doesn't. We've talked about this, um, you know, with you and with other folks on the show. And, you know, you've been someone who's been really like, you know, even to me, like giving me revelations just when you talk about these things and also like help. I think you, you're someone that wants to help people, other, other people get you know, get their applications through, uh, that we've had on the show. Um, what do you think, like when they bring up the word cartel in that Netflix special, like we started using that because it's so yeah. 
It's like some of the things they said in that show were like genius. They were like, you know, yeah. for us, it's just like, wow, this is what we've been yeah. talking about. Do you think there's a cartel in Massachusetts for cannabis right now? I don't, you know, it's a, that's an interesting question. I think that what they, I think that, you know, what the producers of the show were looking at was the nation as a whole. And when you look at the nation, you know, Boston is a subset in our, you know, rules and regulations in the, in the Cannabis Control Commission are designed in a way that will break up a cartel. I think that's the intent of it. But different states don't have that kind of teeth in their rules and regulations. So when you look at Florida, and they use that as a good example, exactly. I think that for the most part, when you have a whole state that's controlled by, um, you know, a small handful of organizations, and the rules and regulations are um, built in a way that it only benefits them, then, you know, I think it may be appropriate. When you look at a state like Pennsylvania, you know, when you look at a state like Louisiana, all the time when you see different states in the same players, you know, dividing up the pie equally amongst themselves, there's a word that can be used for it, you know, and, 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 it's, it's very organized, you know, and, um, you know, cartel may be strong, cartel yeah, maybe may be monopoly and fed, but yeah, they're, I mean, yeah. Listen, yeah. And they, I like, because you're, you're right. in like Massachusetts, like in, in this Netflix special too, it also pointed out like you guys in Massachusetts as being like on the right track, like thinking about this and a little bit ahead. And I think that's kind of true. Like, I think a lot of us have been frustrated because it's taken so long and and the, and the bigger players got through first but i think as time goes on with like se and and some of the new rules and regulations coming up are you really do you feel like like this is headed in the right direction in massachusetts or there are more reforms that we need to make i'm still feeling that we are stymied by the whole community host agreement process i still feel like that is um a big barrier to any deliberate success you know, I think that when you look at the numbers overall between who's getting licenses and who's sitting on the sideline waiting, paying rent, it's very, it's, it's, there isn't a lot of equity in the numbers when it comes to host agreements. I think that at, I've said this before that Massachusetts will end up being a cautionary tale in terms of how you can do it, but I think that other states will learn how to do it better. Without the HTA. Without, without that host community agreement? Without that host community agreement. You know, I think that I'm keeping my eye on New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut to kind of figure out how they formulate a good plan. Chicago, Illinois um, built a framework off of Massachusetts and, approved on, and improved on it. And I think it's an evolving um, design. And I'm hoping that, again, New York, Connecticut, and, and Jersey do better than even what Illinois did. But I think that, you know, the intent was there for a good plan, but that host community agreement undermined a, a progress that was much needed. Kobe, let me ask you um, two interrelated questions, perhaps. 
The first question has to do with the local host community agreement process. Um, I agree with you. I think it would be great to scrap it. But if it's going to exist, do you think a municipal mandate akin to the kind of equity mandate the commission has would help those cities and towns to structure their host community agreement process in a way that ensures that equity applicants are not being cast by the wayside as other larger companies go through? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it was just this weird paradox where you had a, a state mandate for the CCC, but that process was dependent upon the local municipality who had no mandate or they decided that they didn't have a mandate. And so you can't have the sum of the total has to equal each part. But if each part doesn't, you know, have the same mandate, then the, the, the net sum is always going to be zero because everyone's not playing by the same rules. And, and that's what we're seeing. And unfortunately, I don't know that, you know, Massachusetts at the end of the day is going to come up with, despite the, the, the best intentions of the CCC, I think we're going to have a very, very hard time getting a, an A plus rating on, you know, the rollout of, of what voters voted for. And me as someone who voted for, you know, the equity in this provision, um, you know, I, I think that it, 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 it's almost a miscarriage when it doesn't happen because, you know, people supported the legislation based on the promise that it would bring economic empowerment and, and, and social justice and, and, and these other things that help these communities and, and seeming, not even seemingly data, data wise, I, I, it's just not there right now. Um, thank you for that absolutely on point answer. Um, my follow up directly ties into that, which is that you mentioned Pennsylvania and Illinois, and it's so interesting because I was going to ask you a question that actually talks about both of them. So in Illinois, as you're talking about, they've made some excellent progress building on what Massachusetts has done, including a social equity loan fund, etc. In Pennsylvania, they have not done as much, and we see a situation where when companies, especially equity companies, fold, they're being rolled up into other yep. companies, bigger companies, companies that might be looking to skirt license ownership limits or things of that nature. Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, the co-chair of the Joint Cannabis Policy Committee on Beacon Hill, has proposed Senate Bill 2650 that would create a no-interest social equity loan fund, which applicants would pay back so it would sustain itself in perpetuity. If you had access to that kind of state funding, would it have made the application process easier for you? you I think that what you, I think that I think that the bigger answer to that question is would it help a larger group of people, including Kobe Imperial Oasis? And and the empirical answer is yes. Is that you know um, there are a lot of barriers that could, that can be um, addressed, that can be um, fixed with having the right people on your team. And the right people, you know, are usually consultants that cause, you know, some, some, some cash. And so I think that um, it would be helpful to have um, something more deliberate built into the rules, regulations, and, and laws, um, such as having access to capital, um, you know, 
such as having a designated number of licenses and host community agreements that go to economic and social equity applicants. All these things come together um, to create a system that is fair, that is equitable, and that creates parity. Um, so everything and every anything and everything helps. Um, but but money is really at the root of of what defines who is going to get past go and who's not. Absolutely. Um, host community agreements. We talked about that being the big impediment. I'm, I'm just brainstorming in my head, and I want uh, Grant to think about this too. But if we put a bill up it probably go nowhere because all the towns are going to come out against it, cities and towns. They're going to say, we have our contracts. We can't lose this money. But how about like a, like a, it expires. Like you, like basically you're forcing the, the towns and cities to act quickly because if they don't act quickly with a host community agreement, they go away and give them like a five, like they were supposed to be for five years yeah. and they've gone beyond the five years. So how about like a bill, that would get rid of host community agreements like in, in five years or something like that. And it would almost force the towns to come to the table and negotiate within the five years because it's a You know what? I think that the hard part is that, you know, um, so much time has passed. So many host community agreements are signed and space is finite. You know, there's only a limited amount of space across the state for applicants. I think that, you know, um, I'm not sure what kind of corrective, corrective measure um, is available um, just because, you know, so many towns have already signed away their whole done deal. You're right. You're right. You know, I think that in a different design, I think that respectively, you have to allot a designated amount of, of, of applications, of, of licenses to um, equity applicants. And it's not about, you know, 10 big companies dividing up the whole pie. I think that, you know, you have to divide the pie into, you know, 10 slices and three of those slices go to equity applicants and big companies can get six slices and local companies and, and everyone else. And I think you have to find a way. Equity means that it doesn't mean that one person monopolizes or dominates. It just means that there's a balance in the way that you, you have a balanced approach. And I think that there is easily a way to design a balanced approach where you have local ownership, you have equity applicants, and you have big companies. There, there's enough to go around, you know, and, but I think that going forward, you probably will see that model more or hopefully where you have a metric of, you know, these 30 licenses go to equity applicants and, you know, whatever else, however you want to measure it. You've been around some of these big companies. I know like they've approached you, you're doing business with some of them even. Would you think they get that? I don't think that there is a, um, deliberate approach to results I, or let me correct that i think that there with some companies there is only a deliberate approach to results because they have shareholders um you know they have boards of directors and it's it's very binary in terms of how they see things um there isn't a lot of gray it's like okay we need 
to produce so many units, we need to have so many stores, we need to make so much money. And there isn't a lot of qualitative components to how they operate. It's a very straight line between A and C, and there's not a lot of gray in that. So the idea of doing something for the greater good just doesn't show up on the corporate register. Like that's not the way they're thinking. That's not the way they're built. You know, there is no person at the top, you know, who is thinking about, you know, social good. They may have a social department, they may have a department that's focused on community giving, giving or, or whatever the case is. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's a challenge to find a company um, that truly, I'm gonna get tied up here, but that truly cares. You know, you may they may have, you know, something that says, and, and I think that that's the, that how they try and be deliberate by saying we care, you know, but I think that that is to offset some other attributes, you know, but that's corporate America. And, 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 and that's, you know, I think that it's only been in the last 10 years that they have tried to be personal with their, you know, image and to you know demonstrate that they care that they are about the social aspects or about the environment i think that's something new for a lot of companies but most companies are driven by the bottom line and as long as they are making their stockholders happy then you know do you think long term that will make a difference um like there's some thought that lo the longer cannabis goes that the businesses that actually care will get more business than the businesses that are just about the money. Do you feel like that will happen or is it just going to be like it is now? Lowest, you know, closest place, lowest price. You know, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know if cannabis is a commodity or, you know, I mean, I, you know, med made med, med men is a good example of, you know, something like that where, you know, um, people have given them a hard time because they're very, um, Corporate, <laughs> and, they've had, corporate. <laughs> and they've had some issues too, and they've had yeah, a lot of issues. Like in every know, way, whether you're a financial guy or you're a, a social justice warrior, there's issues. Yeah, and, yeah, and so I think that you know they may be a good example, but I, I mean, it's hard to have a corporation or to be a corporation and and to have a face. You know, I think companies try very hard. You know, but I, I don't know that. I don't know. I, it's not necessarily something that is um, a problem in the cannabis industry. I think it's a problem across many industries in corporate America where you have, you know, companies that are driven by the bottom line and not necessarily about how much of a good community partner they are or how much they, you know, care about, you know, um, their employees. I think it's something that, that, that companies will always have a hard time with. Um, you know, but I, I don't know. I, I can't put myself in those shoes and try and pretend that I understand that world because I don't. Are there any reforms that you would like to see right right now, kind of in the industry? Uh, um, nationally or locally? Um, oh, Massachusetts, yes, Massachusetts. We need, we need more equity. We need more. We 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 absolutely need more equity. You know, we need. The, a better representation of the cross-section of people that live in this state to be owners. We need more economic empowerment. You know, we, we need more um, 
to stem the curve of, of the economic disenfranchise that's happening. Um, and this is a great vehicle because it's directly related to the war on drugs and it impacts those people that have been negatively affected. And, you know, all these things are important and, and they're close, you know, and we have, I, I, I've talked to so many people who have, have pending applications with the CCC and they're waiting for a host agreement. and. It's something that we can do immediately, but you know, more equity creates a balanced group of people in this industry that can, you know, lend different backgrounds and different perspectives. And you know, there are some great people out there who are dying to get into this industry, and you know, they need to get in. And Boston is uh, doing their, you know, they're about to have hearings, and they're about to yeah. get started with this new new, new equity group, apparently. Um, yeah. What, what do you do? You think that's going to happen in Boston? Well, I think that Boston could be a game changer because you know there's potential for a, a big chunk of licenses to be given out to um, equity applicants, and, and and probably the largest concentration in the state. And you know, my hope is that um, Boston becomes uh, a game changer. You know, I hope that Boston, you know, looks at it from a, a lens that provides opportunity for so many people that missed out in so many other towns like Brockton and Amesbury and, you know, wherever else. And, you know, I, 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 I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful. And I think that, you know, one of the deliberate steps that Boston is taking is to um, take the power away from one particular person and to hopefully give it to a group of people that will look at a number of different factors, not necessarily who your attorney is or, you know, what kind of political contributions you've made. Awesome. Yeah. But I, yeah. I have uh, two questions actually, Kobe, I guess I'll ask you about Boston first and then ask you about the other one. Um, Boston's equity program, uh, as you probably know, doesn't just take into consideration participation in the state's economic empowerment or social equity program. What do you think about the way Boston structured its equity program in terms of who qualifies? Um, hold on, I'm just having a small issue with my camera, but so no, no rush. So repeat that question for me, though. Sure. So the city of Boston set up its equity program a little differently than other cities in that being an economic empowerment or social equity applicant is just one of a set of criteria to become an equity applicant in Boston. Do you yep. like that structure of kind of letting more folks in than just participants in the EE and SE program? Why or why not? Um. So I had a lot of issues with that part of um, the regulations. Or, and so I felt like there should have been a tiered system where people who did, equity applicants who did what they were supposed to do in the application process should have been given credit for showing up when they did, filling out the paperwork when they did, and getting all the ducks lined up um, with the CCC. 
I felt like there should have been some credit for that because there was a lot of deliberate work that went into doing that. So then when um, the new city regs came out and the wording was a little um, confusing or not as straightforward, I felt like a lot of people could potentially be left out um, of the equation. And I just had a lot of concern, you know, for myself and other applicants who've been working very hard, paying a lot of money in rent and, and waiting patiently for HCA. And, you know, I think that when I first saw that draft proposal, it said one thing. And then when I saw the final regs, it said something else. And, and, and I just, you know, I, I took exception to it. Yeah, I know that was a topic of discussion uh, that was very uh, passionate in the community. Uh, I saw uh, Omnique Garner, Chauncey Spencer, and a few other applicants go into City Hall and try to beat back some of those provisions. So huge shout out to them and thank you for that, uh, for that answer. It kind of ties in what I was going to ask you about second, which was you mentioned a little bit earlier that there are a lot of people still on the sidelines paying rent a lot of people are still in the unregulated market, in fact. Last year, and I'm asking you this not because you sponsored this, but because some other dispensaries did. Some dispensaries proposed a bill that would target the unregulated market. The bill was H4168, and it would have created this task force with the state police and the tax agencies, and it basically would have created a criminal enforcement task force, and we know what would have happened. Uh, it would have led to the same exact problems that were the reason we legalized cannabis with an equity structure. So as a dispensary owner, how do you think about the unregulated market and how our lawmakers, public safety officials, and regulators should approach that challenge? And uh, uh, trade organizations like the Commonwealth Dispensary Association. Yeah. Um, we live in an interesting, you know, economy where, um, a lot of our clients don't have the kind of income that will allow for a regular purchase of cannabis, you know, and coupled with the fact that a lot of our clients need cannabis for health reasons, um, depression, anxiety, whatever else that helps them cope. These same clients have had to rely on the illicit market forever because that was the only option they had. And it's difficult as an owner to be in a community where the community has a hard time affording, you know, the cannabis that we are there to sell. And so it creates this, this, this issue where, you know, there aren't a lot of options that we can offer in the price range that's going to be affordable by the community. And so the community, you know, ends up going to the illicit market. And, you know, until we can get a to a point where our prices can come down and it's more affordable and more competitive, people have no choice. Like this, it's wow. a record drug but also it is a necessity for a lot of people just right. on you know post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't just happen to people who go to war if you've been over policed then you know you potentially have ptsd if or abusive you, family 
Yeah. Abusive family. If you've seen your mom and dad fighting, there are a lot of things that lead to PTSD and cannabis is one of the therapies that, you know, people with that disorder tend to use. So it's not elective. It's not recreational. A lot of times it's it's a necessity. Um, So you really can't, you know, mandate that someone has to go to a dispensary to purchase, you know, um, cannabis at a price that they can't afford. There has to be another option, you know, and until we come up with that other option, um, what you don't want to do is to create a situation where, again, people are being over-policed and potentially have another, you know, um, situation where someone is injured or loses their life at the hands of a police officer over something silly like a potentially fake $20 bill or, you know, whatever else may happen. Now that cost issue that we've been talking about that too, like big time saying that they really want to, in the illicit market, the state needs to get the the price of cannabis lower or, or have a sliding scale that can even be free. Yeah. For for people who because we know like Grant, Grant and a lot of our friends who are patients, they're living on ten, fifteen thousand dollars a year from the yeah. from their, you know, disability. I mean, they can't afford the product and they really need it. Um, even myself, a working class person, it, it gets really difficult. You have to make choices and uh a lot of times people yeah. are going to that illicit market just because it's cheaper. Do we it think um, and again you I'm sorry. We're all talking. No, I just, I I didn't mean to jump in. I just that was so touching, Kobe. What you said, and before I know Mike has another question. I just wanted to thank you because that mentality redeems my faith in the cannabis industry. And if you were put up for election to any board of any trade group, or even if you ran for president, you just mm-hmm. earned my vote. Yeah. Will you run for office someday? Response. Well, you can. No. That's the other thing. Would you consider ever running for office? No. Never. Oh, come on. Never. We'll talk you into no. it. Never. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I think that, you know, just to kind of go back to what we were talking yeah, about, yeah. Um, not to be evasive, but, um, you know, even when you look at medical, you know, the, the cost associated with getting a medical card, you know, I think that if there was a, a, a better track to help people get a medical card at no cost, you know, something like that, where you're not paying as high taxes and, you can get the higher dosing. Um, that may would also be an option, but you know, too, all too many times, you know, people from marginalized communities are locked out, locked out of these opportunities, um, and it becomes a health issue. Um, but we have to come up with some sort of solution. But you know, any sort of policing, you know, is problematic. Mike, um, I'm sorry. I know you had a question. Kobe. Well, it's about I the wanted... hardship. Uh, I, I think you may yeah, have sure. a question, actually. Do you have? Well, you know I was ac- well, well, I, I, I do want to get to the hardship, but before we transition yeah. off equity, I wanted to ask Kobe a question because he just brought up how access to medical cannabis in disadvantaged communities or disproportionately impacted communities is so important because it's a medicine. By the same token, ownership, as you were talking about, is also so important. 
One thing I've noticed is that dating back to 2012, the medical cannabis program in Massachusetts has never had an equity program or an economic empowerment program for medical licenses. If lawmakers were to propose, uh, say, a three to five year period during which new medical licenses would only go to EEs and SEs, what would you think of that proposal? And it would be de-verticalized, too. They could also do like individual medical licenses, like cultivation, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, that, I, that, I mean, I think that any opportunity that the lawmakers can create to, you know, add some diversity, um, to add some economic justice to the field, it's, it's welcomed. And, and I think that Massachusetts has made some progress, but there is ways to go in the state in terms of, you know, creating diversity and um, c- c- beating back the economic disparities that exist here. We have to be creative and we have to think outside the box in terms of opportunities that are available. And, you know, all across the country, um, medical cannabis is dominated by a small handful of companies, whether directly or indirectly. Um, And that's an easy uh, opportunity to create diversity, to create equality, to create um, a system where um, people from all walks of life, because it's a product that's, that's used by everyone, but is controlled by a few. Now that uh, going back to the cost issue, we've been talking about maybe doing a, like proposing a sliding fee, like a sliding um, schedule, like they're, like they're supposed to do for medical patients. They're supposed to have like this hardship program where they give discounts to the patients that have the lowest income. Some of them do them, some of them don't. It's not even much of a discount if they do it. Um, to really like bring that out, like to to have the state force that in a bill, is that something that you think would be a good idea or is just too much on the dispensaries themselves? You know, I, again, the medical field is a little different. I think that, you know, I can talk, you know, high level terms in terms of, you know, um, equality and equity and things of that nature in terms of the mechanics of how it works. I'm not sure, but, you know, I think that this is about being creative. And I think that, you know, um, there are enough intelligent people out there to solve this problem easily. And I think it is a solvable problem. I think it's just about having the determination and the desire to address it. And I think that's what we need the people in the room who, you know, people like Commissioner Tito, you know, thank God for her because she's someone who's very deliberate about creating solutions for these problems in a way that, you know, is a lot of lateral thinking and, and, and bringing other people into consideration and, you know, we would be better if we had more people like Commissioner Title in the various rooms when we talk about equity, because most people don't understand what equity is or the importance of it. And, you know, diversity in um, commissioners, diversity in, you know, politicians, we need more of that in the state. We need more of that in the nation. And, and, and when we have that, the, what comes out of those conversations will train, change dramatically. Awesome. We have a lot of uh, comments on the Facebook feed and they're all like, Kobe is the man. Uh, Mr. Evans is without a doubt uh, sharp on the issues and a leader for equity in the Commonwealth. Thank you for having him on. Sending love to Pure Oasis. People are loving you right now, Kobe. 
They haven't mentioned Grant or I at all. <laughs> That's a perfect show for us. Yep. We do have a question, actually, in the comments, Kobe, if you um, don't mind Go me asking. Um, so this is a fellow EE applicant who has asked, what lessons can you pass on to dispensaries yet affected by uh, looting from your dispensary and other dispensaries across the nation's experiences? You know what? Um, I think that, unfortunately, you know, it's... It, it, <laughs> You know, we live our life one way and then all of a sudden, you know, now we're, we own a dispensary. And the reality is, is that you have to always have your antennas, your antenna up. And, you know, we knew about COVID at our grand opening because the mayor had to leave and go down the city hall to have a press conference. We knew about COVID before that because you know, we were dealing with packaging companies and they were overseas and they had to shut down because of, you know, um, travel restrictions. And so it was out there and everyone knew about it, but we just never thought that we would, you know, be in the headlights of this global pandemic. You know, we knew that um, George, George Floyd had been killed. You know, we knew that there would be protests. We knew exactly where the protests were going to be, but never did we think that, you know, Pure Oasis would be targeted by these people. So I think that, you know, in terms of some of these national and local and, and global um, issues, you have to be reactive no matter what. You have to have a plan for if. If is going to be you know, one of your biggest friends because you have to have a plan A, B, and C. You know, I thought it was kind of funny that Macy's was boarding up all of its windows come Saturday, you know, before the protest. I thought that was an overreaction. In hindsight, you know, you have to overreact to overcompensate um, for a lot of these things as an owner of these types of businesses because um, they are the businesses that, that, for lack of a better term, are targeted. Thank you. We're talking to Kobe Evans. He's the owner of Pure Oasis, the co-owner. We should uh, mention Kevin is your partner. Yeah, you met right? Kevin. Yes, we met Kevin. He came in last time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, we're really happy that you're on the show today. And our audience is too. A lot of people are listening and commenting and loving it. So I want to thank you so much uh, for spending an hour with us tonight. No worries. Um, Where can, you know, I know people most people know it's in Grove Hall but if people want to look it up on the internet and uh, seek out Pure Oasis where where is it located yeah so we just launched our newly designed website we're still working out a couple of kinks but it's mypureoasis.com um, so that's Instagram Twitter Facebook my pure oasis um, so there's some more stuff coming on our website in terms of our new design um, you know, and I think that just overall, just, you know, come by the shop, check us out. You don't have to buy anything. Um, you know, we're working on a lot of events lately for um, social equity applicants around delivery. Um, we want to try and be um, helpful as possible, helping people navigate um, the application process, the business startup process. Um, you know, understanding the last, the landscape so they can be successful at, you know, um, applying for and running a delivery business. Um, so we definitely have a lot of events planned 
um, to help a lot of applicants. Right now, delivery is key, so we want to try and help as many people possible as possible understand, you know, what goes into running a delivery business. That's awesome. MyPureOasis.com. Roll yeah. call. Check it out. Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, the first uh, recreational dispensary opened in the city of Boston. Black-owned black dispensary. First economic empowerment in Boston. A lot of first. Thank you for coming on again, Kobe Evans. No worries. All right. Have a good night. Okay, guys. Have a good night. Good to see you as always. You yep. too. So that was uh that was awesome. That that was great. Uh we are still live, obviously. Uh, I kinda we, cut it off a little early, didn't I? A little awkward. I do that sometimes. I don't know why. I was just like Well, we've we've changed format recently. And I want to make sure that I don't keep them too long. I mean we kept the man an hour, you know? Well, and by the same token, we now have the opportunity to do something which we didn't in studio, which was stay live for a few minutes after the guest leaves. So it's a little bit different. Uh, where we can kind of decompress and talk about it yeah. afterwards. Maybe so. play his his audio, his uh, video too, if we have that. I don't know. You know, uh, the Netflix again. It's okay. We don't have to do that. We we this was a good show. I really enjoyed that discussion. I I cannot believe how much I learned in that short time period. I felt like we were talking for five minutes, and I was given access to a walking encyclopedia. One it, hour. It's and he's fascinating. Just, he he would have kept talking too. Like that was the thing. I'm like, you know what? We're an hour. Let's just, you know, like we got gold here. We got a lot of good info. He, he was great. Yeah. And, and every single time I have the opportunity to interview someone on this show, it's a learning experience. Yep. And very rarely when I interview someone on this show, is it an inspirational experience? Yeah. You mean, it makes you feel good. And it's not like an out to lunch way. Like I like Kobe cause he's uh reasonable and measured but he's also he's a fighter like you heard him tonight yeah i mean I, we asked him some questions <laughs> i mean that was good sure. our audience is great too i want to thank our audience for listening uh, i know a lot of people uh have bad love for kobe evans and pure oasis and all that they've been through over the last months but especially this last week i mean when i heard that news it broke my heart you know, so I'm glad we got to have the conversation with him tonight. That was unbelievable. Thank you for doing it, Grant. You you had some great questions, too. Oh, thank you for allowing me the opportunity, Mike. This has been, I know for a lot of folks out there, especially during our last episode uh, where we actually featured some of the footage of the protests, this has been coming off the heels of the pandemic, a very trying week after uh, what happened to George Floyd and really ripping bare the fact that there is still so much pain in this country over the existing economic and social injustice. And I know a lot of folks sometimes turn to this show as a way to get some cannabis news, but this week has been very hard on so many people. And having the opportunity to have a discussion of that nature by a business owner who was directly affected, yet still was able to focus his compassion on the protesters and where they're coming from, that really changed the game for me. And I, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to have been here. It shows why he really is a leader. I mean, and then the people are asking to give him money to, you know, to support Pure Oasis, and he sends it to the Haley House. 
I mean, that's a real, he's a real leader. You can see it. Um, and other people are noticing it too on our Facebook live. Here's a comment. Uh, oh, I just lost it. Here it is. Uh, Kobe Evans for city council 2024. They want, everyone wants him to run. I think he reflects the kind of compassionate introspection that unfortunately we are not seeing displayed day to day by our national leaders. And that's putting it lightly. Um, Seeing that kind of commitment to integrity, but also compassion. It's a rare combination. And I can see why so many, it wasn't one or two people. It was repeated comments on the stream. You get, tuned into what Kobe's saying and you feel that he would have the ability to change the world. And I think what we've seen is is that he already has. I mean, that Netflix special, you know, the conversation has changed from that, that Netflix. And he was a part of that. I mean, they had to be there to make that special. So special, (laughs) believe me. I mean, just him, you know, what they did in Boston to be the first black owned, they, they changed the narrative by getting there and just being who they are. Like, you know, everyone likes them, including the mayor, mayor Walsh. I'm sure like, I'm sure the CDA likes him, you know, everybody likes the guy. So, uh, it's, we're the young jerks. We're here whenever we want now. It's Mike and Grant. And we had a good show tonight. One of the, I keep saying it every show, but I feel like every show manages to top itself. I just start to enjoy them more and more to the point where my list of favorite episodes is going to just have five or 10 episodes at number one. Well, we get good guests. They're good people. And that's who we have on the show. You know, it's about them more than us. We'd bring something. I mean, we're we're each special in our own way. (laughs) I just love the opportunity to ask folks who are so willing to debate and discuss issues questions because yeah i loved i love tonight because he's so open we had we asked him in the beginning like is there anything before the interview started with anything that i shouldn't even ask him and i was like because i get worried you know that we're gonna i said is there anything you don't want us to ask you tonight like he was like looked away and then he was like no just ask me whatever you want you know, and we did. So, you know, and uh, I'll also say, you know, how we have the, right now, the Young Jerks have the activist poll going on the best activists in Massachusetts. And, you know, Grant Smith is near the top, number two. And uh, Jennifer Neifer is number one. I think Kobe Evans should be up there, too. I mean, you know, it's he's an activist. You could see it tonight. I saw his activist side. He's not, you know, in the street screaming activist, but, you know, he puts on, when you put things on the line, you're an activist. Absolutely. And I heard a debate the other day, and I think we talked about it on the show as to where the line is between when is someone an activist, when is someone a lobbyist, when is someone a marketer, whatever. An activist is someone who's willing to put themselves on the line. And that means different things for different people. And you're no no less of an activist because what you're putting on the line is different. If you're putting your, if you have to be nuanced in your activism because of your position of power, if anything, 
you're doing more of a service to exactly. the community. Because most people can't thread that needle. I have a, I've had difficulty over time threading the needle. Yeah, I think I'm getting better at it, but it's a learning experience, and this guy is really good. Kobe is really impressed. Proud of, I'm Boston proud because of Kobe tonight. I hope you all are. All right, we're the Young Jerks. We got a lot more coming out. Shows, episodes, stories. We we Grant and I just don't have enough time. It's either sleep or work, sleep or work, sleep or work. That's all I'm doing now. Well, I've never been in the position before where I literally did not have enough hours in the day, but I'm slowly, slowly getting there. We're trying to do more with us. We'll keep going though. I'm feeling good about things. I, I think you are too. I'm feeling yeah. good about the movement. Even though things are still tough, that Massachusetts is still behind. I think it's much better. And that's what I really took away from Kobe's perspective. And this is someone who just suffered a crime that to someone like myself would be 10 years of my income. And he came out of it positive. And that's the lesson I took away among many other things. After COVID-19 too, how much did that cost him? Right. You know? Right. And he came away positive looking towards the future. And that's what gives, I was in a very dark place in my life. I don't talk about it a lot when I first felt disabled because I did not have a reason to get up in the morning. And it's folks like Kobe and folks like you, Mike, and this entire community that inspire me every morning to have that reason to get up. And I can't thank you all enough for it because it's the reason why this republic exists is that folks were willing to do things that went against their own interests for the betterment of mankind on the whole. And every single person who carries that legacy, whether it's on the micro level in your day-to-day life or on the macro level in your official position, you are doing a service to this republic and deserve to be lauded as a hero alongside every other hero serving this nation. All right, we're the Young Jerks. That was Grant Smith. You've got, you've got a couple stump speeches. You could run for office now, too. I think people would vote for you. Grant Smith, 2022. We do need more disabled people in office. That is something I feel very strongly about. There you go. You'll be the first one. Maybe. I don't know. No, there are. There are some there are disabled others? lawmakers. Okay. Um, for example, uh, Senator, oh, I hope I'm not going to forget her name. I believe it is Hirono from Hawaii is uh, in a wheelchair. And she is a United States senator, and she does amazing work for veterans. Uh, I believe she was a combat injured veteran. So uh, there are folks out there, and they, they are doing good work, and they deserve support and credit without question. You, you make sure you take care of yourself, though. I mean, uh, I don't want to – you're doing too much now. No, I, 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 I very much appreciate it's, – it's funny in some ways that folks – we're so traumatized by having to be inside for extended periods of time during COVID-19. And I kind of said, well, this is what it's like to be disabled. So it's interesting in that sense, because I've actually had an easier time adapting to life in the time of COVID-19 than some other folks. And if anything, it's easier for me to navigate the world when everyone's stuck in their homes. I'm sorry to you all that you have to deal with this, but it's easier for me. I've kind of enjoyed it myself. I like staying at home, what you call a homebody. So I'm like, this is like a vacation to stay home all the time with my dogs and my beautiful but, place. 
I also want to recognize that um, over 100,000 people have lost their lives from the That's coronavirus. Right. And as much as, as a disabled person, it's easy for me to kind of take things on the chin. This is a, it is a very serious situation. And those of you who are listening, uh, although it can be easy sometimes to get lost in the tidal wave of news that happens every minute of every day, please keep your own health and safety, like Mike was saying to me, at the forefront and always put yourself and your safety first. Yeah, I'm worried about that. I think people are getting complacent on it now with all these protests that they're watching and the reopenings. We'll see what happens, but... uh, I, I think people need to be safe. I, it's always good to be safe on the safe side, especially with something like this. Yes. All right. Again, we're the Young Jerks. I think we're done now, right? We have anything yeah. else announced to announce tonight or promote or no? Uh, stay stay tuned to the Young Jerks Facebook, as Mike said, for more information about the um, Michael Malta Activist Award. Uh, there will be another award poll for the uh, best elected official coming soon. Uh, also, you can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, Spotify, or uh, Breaker, or wherever else your podcasts are found. 